Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where I am teaching my lovely daughter how to invest. Wow. Uh, yeah. How to invest. Like what? Like what, Dad? What kind of investing? Well, the only real kind of investing. Oh, Everything else is real. not investing. <laughs> Everything else is some form of speculation, actually. So Everything that they then? teach you. Everything that they teach you in school about investing, about modern portfolio theory, about what almost every single advisor does, all of it is speculation. Because what they're telling you to do is diversify across the whole market. And what that means is you're just speculating that the U.S. economy will go up. And maybe it will. Uh, probably it will. But it isn't really investing. Investing, according to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, the two best investors in the world, investing is really only happening when you, with a high degree of certainty, are buying $10 of value for $5. That is definitely true. But I'm a little thrown that you're saying that investing in the U.S. is actually speculating because Buffett says that that's an investment. He says... That's a good investment, actually. It's a good bet, actually, I think is what he says. It's a good bet that the United States economy will continue to lead the world. It's been a good bet for a long, long time. And I think uh, he would agree that it's a decent bet. And he's made that bet, actually. Mm -hmm. Not with the companies he owns, because the companies he owns, he buys because... He's buying $10 of value for $5. He's made that bet in the form of an options trade. Oh. Mm-hmm. What's an that all options about? Options trade. I just put out a four-letter word. Options. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> O-P-T-N. Option. <laughs> So what, he like does options on the index or something? What does he do? He does. And he also does options on individual stocks. And so I thought that I would, and this is this is a little bit out on the edge for everybody, I know, uh, because we talk about long-term investing here, um, to bring in options, which sound like the exact polar opposite and the worst form of speculation, um, and a form of speculation where approximately 99% of the people who do options trading manage to lose all their money, um, which would indicate this is even worse than maybe going to Las Vegas. Well, probably about the same. So um, why in the world would we discuss this? Particularly, why would we discuss it in the context of Warren Buffett being perhaps the world's largest options trader? Hmm. Hmm. How can well, that happen? How do we get Warren Buffett, the world's largest options trader, uh, I'm not saying for sure he is, but I, he's in, definitely in the ballpark, um, into the same sentence as Warren Buffett, the world's best long-term investor, where an investment is just something you do when you know you've got a big disparity between price and value. So how do those things happen? And the reason that they happen is because Warren has always had an element of gambling in his portfolio. Whoa. Yeah. All right, so we just spent like weeks and weeks and weeks talking about technical indicators, which we never really wanted to talk about. Right. And now we're talking about how Buffett gambles? Yeah, Warren started off back in the 50s with uh, essentially three kinds of investments that he laid out in a letter, I think in 1961, that he said 
we do three different kinds of investing. One we, he calls the generals, which is the basic stock investing we've been talking about for a couple of years. Those are just investments where we think we have a disparity between price and value. We understand the business. We don't buy lots of them. We might be, you know, try to buy five to ten or so companies. And that's just standard investing for Buffett 101. The second kind of investment, he said, is we get control. He called them controls. We get control of a company. In other words, we take it over. So we're not going to talk about oh, okay. those. Right, not yeah, yet. Yeah. yeah, but famously, he took over, um, was it Solomon Brothers? Uh, he, he sort of had to take over Solomon he Brothers. Sort of had to, right? Yeah, he took control of it um, in order to have the government not liquidate them. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of companies where he ultimately has taken control. I would say the vast majority of the Berkshire portfolio are companies that he actually owns completely. Mm -hmm. So those are called controls and are a little bit outside the purview of our of our discussion because most of us don't have the capital to take control of a business. At least we think we don't. But I would encourage you, Hun, to think about this as a as another leg of, of a three-legged stool of investing where you should always be looking out there, I think, in your life for good companies, whether they're public or private. Right. So if somebody came yeah. along and said, Danielle, I've got this fantastic laundromat in Zurich that basically is the only one in the city. It says the only permit to have a laundromat that exists and they won't give any more out. Um, and obviously travelers coming through uh, that don't have a lot of money need a place to do their clothing. And this thing just prints money and I will sell it to you because I'm going through a divorce and I need to get the cash. I'll sell it to you. Um, you don't have to really manage it at all. It's got a good manager and I'll sell it to you at a 10% yield on the cash that you pay me. I'll sell it to you for a 10 cap. I would say that sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. And then you want to look into it and make sure the facts are right, right? You need to be able to have uh, understanding of the business. You need to understand the moat. Does it really have a moat that the city is only going to let this many uh, one laundromat in there, and that's a huge moat. Um, is it well managed? You want to check out the management. In other words, the first three things determining that that's a wonderful business are identical to looking at a public company. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the difference with a private company is that you don't have the same kind of controls and oversight and regulation that a public company has, and they also don't have to provide the same information. So having done a number of private M&A deals as an attorney, I would strongly caution people, and I'm not your attorney, and I'm not giving legal advice, but in general, be very careful about the due diligence on a private deal like that. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, we call it transparency as one of the real benefits of, of investing in public companies is transparency. Um, hmm. By law, they have to produce all this information. And it's actually one of the problems of investing even in public companies in, uh, you know, Estonia or in China. Is China, that it's a huge problem. It's a huge company. problem because they have different sets of books going on. Uh, they're going to show you one thing and they're getting away with it because the Chinese government's perfectly happy for the Chinese companies to come and get Western money and bring it into China. So they let them do whatever they want. And what they want is to show you a pretty face and um, lots of uh, many times when we run the kind of screen that we use in rule one investing, we find a lot of Chinese companies come up matching the screen. 
which mm. means that they have really good long-term numbers. Everything's green. It just looks great. And then you find out you can't really see a audited financial statement. You, nobody's going to give you that because they can't truly audit the business. And a lot of them have been found to be complete frauds that were huge, huge public in the, you know, public companies in the U.S. turned out to be fraudulent. So there's a really interesting book that I read when I was a kid, because this is like the kind of house we had um, called Investment Biker, which is by um, what's his name, Dad? Jim Rogers. Uh, Jim Rogers, who is a very famous investor. And the book is about how he rode his motorcycle around the world. And as he went, he visited tiny stock exchanges in tiny countries that were almost impossible to really find out about or reach without physically going there. So he took advantage of doing this like crazy adventure trip that he wanted to do and added on some investing stuff. And he actually did buy stock in some companies as he drove around the world and put it in his book. It was pretty cool. I think that might've been, I was very small when I read that book. (laughs) It might've been the first time I ever really heard of a stock exchange. I'm not sure I knew what it was, but I knew that he was interested in them. This, this is what happens, by the way, parents out there, when you don't have um, video, you don't have electronic devices to, to babysit your children, is they'll end up picking up books. Oh, no. <laughs> they end up becoming super weirdo book nerds who don't know any of the pop cultural touchstones from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Such a crisis of of uh, friendship, I guess. I don't know. But I'm so proud of you, honey, that you picked up Jim's book and read it. And I'm sure he would be, too. He's one of the guys I'd really like to meet someday. He um, he he sort of uh, saw that China is going to be a, an enormous impact on the world. And he wanted his children to speak Mandarin Chinese. And mm. so he moved to Singapore. And enrolled them in a school there where they they uh, become fluent. I mean, Singapore is about three quarters Chinese. That's um, extremely dramatic, considering that there are a number of schools in the U.S. that offer Mandarin Chinese full time. Well, I think it was also that he was kind of concerned that uh, the direction the United States is going fiscally was going to ultimately result in a bankruptcy. And I think he's uh, not so, so sorry about getting his capital out of America in a significant degree. Um, and just but, to put you know, a blame, blame it on the kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't think he's sorry that he made the decision. I mean, they're much older now than they, I think they went over 10 years ago. Um, and I think the girls do speak Mandarin Chinese and Singapore is a, an amazing place, um, where the rule of law rules with an iron fist. And, uh, they have a jail, a, a city of 4 million people, um, where in Los Angeles, in a city of 4 million people, there's 25,000 people in jail every given day. Um, In Singapore, there are about four people in jail. And no one breaks the law there if they can possibly, unless they're completely stupid, um, because it's enforced radically, quickly. Like there's no hanging around. And you don't, if you're a guy and you do graffiti on the walls in Singapore, um, first, they'll catch you, and second, they put you in jail for a couple of days. Then you have a trial, like in a week, and there are no juries, and the judges are incorruptible, and you're going to be found guilty. And then they will take you over and and uh, and handcuff you to a wall, and they will pull your pants down and cane you nine times across the butt with a cane, which hurts, and then they set you free. 
Yeah, I remember that happened a long time ago to some American kid. I think it was for, it was either graffiti or it was chewing gum. I can't remember. Yeah, one or the other. They're both illegal. And it was a huge international situation. Yeah. I mean, and Singapore doesn't care. They're like, I'm sorry, it works here. So yeah. um, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but I'm just saying that um, well, that's where Jim I will, is. I will advocate for his book. It's excellent. It's, uh, you know, got to be like, what, like 25 years old at this point? Cause yeah. Because I read it when I was a kid. Um, but it's great, and I highly recommend everybody read that. I'm going to add that to my reading list, actually, for our invested book club. Yeah, and Jim is actually a, a guy that I do follow. He's not precisely a rule one type investor. He's very much a global macro kind of guy, which means that he's watching uh, the movement and flow of the economies around the world and trying to make a determination about what asset group is likely to go up or down. And as a result, he's very involved in commodities around the world. And, mm-hmm. um, and by the way, for what it's worth, Jim said, you know, mark the date, June 2000. Uh, June 2017, that within 18 months or so, um, he expected a meltdown the size of which we've never seen in our lifetime, an economic meltdown. So we're coming up on the last six months of that um, prognostication. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Right now, we're looking like uh, it's a melt up going on. (laughs) But I got to say, you know, uh, with all the stuff about China in the news right now, you know, the Trump administration is... uh, very uh, adamant about r- removing uh, China's ability to steal uh, technology from us, which they've been doing aggressively for 25 years uh, to improve their ability to compete in the world. And America, naturally, has uh, basically passed off its ability to be a manufacturing power. Um, steel is made cheaper everywhere. Um, you know, manufacturing of things, as we all know, is uh, strongly done all around the world, not so much in the U.S. We've lost our textile industry, so your socks are made in Vietnam or China. Um, and uh, what that means is that our ability to compete is no longer on the basis of manufacturing. Well, So we're competing on the basis of technological development. That's where we lead the world. And if China can steal everything, um, then patents mean nothing. And uh, all we have to do is invent, you know, then somebody invents the next iPhone and boom, it's in China instantly. And they back engineer it and then or steal the pay somebody to give them the plans. And so Trump's trying to put an end to that by forcing China to respect the World Trade Organization laws in order to be a trading partner. And it's going to cause some pain. Um, He is putting on one tariff after another. China is going to respond. And Trump thinks he's going to win this tariff game uh, because... Uh, we have a $350 billion negative flow of money into China, and they have a $150 billion negative flow of money into us. So we're $350 versus $150, um, and our economy is much larger and, um, and more robust. Trump thinks he's going to win. Um, there's reason to think he will. But meanwhile, this could throw us off the edge in terms of a recession. So right in yeah. the middle of clear Absolutely. blue sky... Uh, we could get hit by lightning. And of course, there's no better time to do it. If you're going to do it, you got to do it when it's sun shining in your country's economy because it's going to be a squeeze, right? We're going to see the price of things go up in America. And you know what? I'm kind of okay with that. I, I'm kind of okay with the price of things going up. And I know that that probably sounds a little bit 
uh, crass, you know, I mean, I'm a guy with money, so I can handle the price of things going up. And people don't have money, it's going to be a bigger strain when Walmart starts raising the price of your socks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's, here's the point, is that when the price of things goes up, American manufacturers become more competitive. And some of these, these, uh, these industries like steel and so on are, are important to have in the country. And those are American workers that no longer are working. And so one of his campaign pledges was to try to get more jobs into the Midwest, which has been decimated by global trade. And we want to see that happen. We want to see Americans with more money because Americans with more money will spend money, they'll consume more, and that means more jobs for everybody. So there's a potential uh, virtuous, uh, sort of a virtuous cycle that may come out of increasing the price of Chinese goods. Um, yeah. Now, the flip side of that is, <laughs> the, the flip side is, that they're going to make American goods less competitive, and that means the loss of jobs in some industries. That means farmers are going to get squeezed, and you're going to see some screaming going on out of the Midwest politicians um, if these crops aren't aren't sold, right? So it's not going to be clean, and it's not going to be pretty, and we're heading into it, and I don't think Trump's going to back off. And as a result, uh, this could be the brick on the camel's back that uh, Jim Rogers was expecting would happen. And if that happens... Absolutely, we could get tossed into a big recession. And absolutely, when that happens, the stock market will respond by basically coming down aggressively. Mm-hmm. And that means down 25, 35, 45%. Um, and uh, that's our opportunity. That's what Warren Buffett Ooh. was talking about. That's our opportunity. <laughs> Wait, well, when was he talking about that? Um, in the last two meetings in Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett was talking about having a oh. lot of cash and yeah. the fact that every periodic time and he said 10 years there's an economic storm and right, right. there's one brewing right now with these chinese tariffs and their response and that economic storm he said will create uh golden rain there's something wrong with that it will rain gold that no, sounds he better said it'll rain gold, gold. Not gold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going there. I'm just not even going to comment on all these tariff comments that you've just made. There's a lot going on around that stuff. And uh, I think, you know, that could be a whole other discussion. But I I take your point that it's volatile right now. It's volatile. This is why we keep talking about this over and over and over and over. That's right. So in that context. Okay. I want to I want to talk about something that I started this conversation off with, which is that Buffett's one of the largest uh, options traders in the world, and um, we mentioned he was potentially doing options on indexes. That's in fact true. He is doing options on indexes, which are bets essentially that the U.S. economy will recover, and he's made some long bets, essentially saying, "Look, I'll tell you what." If the uh, S&P 500 is below a certain point uh, by the year 2025 or something like that, um, then I will pay you uh, this amount of money. Now, how do you know that? Oh, it was very public. Like he announced it. It got into the papers. I don't know if he announced it, but it got into the papers. Um, Here's why I'm asking. That is not something that's publicly disclosed through the SEC. No, it isn't. That kind of information, take with a grain of salt. Well, you don't have to take I mean, it with unless, a grain of salt. He said it. Oh yeah, it's in his it's in his annual report. 
And the reason that he put it in his annual report is that options are treated um, when you sell. Here's what happens. When you oh, I don't remember that part. I'll have to look it up. Well, when you sell an option, um, when you sell a put option, now I'm really in the weeds now, I know. Okay, so sit back, relax. When you sell a put option, effectively what you're doing is you are an insurance company who's saying, I'll sell you an insurance policy. Um, instead of it being on your house or on your life, it's on your stock. And so I will sell you a policy you'll pay me a premium, and then if your house burns down, I'll pay for it. And so in the, in, a, in the options world, what that means is that if the stock, we'll agree that I will buy your stock at a set price. So I'm gonna agree that if you own the index stock, SPY or SPX, I will buy it from you at a set price. And I will do that, I'm obligated to do that for as long as we've decided the policy will exist. So in this case, Warren uh, wrote policies for about seven or eight years. I will, I will obligate myself for the next eight years to buy your stock at this set price. Um, and if it goes below that price, and it's below that price on the last day, then I'll buy it from you. Now, meanwhile, you've given me a chunk of money called a premium in, in both insurance and in options trading, it's called a premium, and you've given me this chunk of money. And with Buffett, what they've done is they've given him so much money to insure them against a meltdown in the US market that all he has to do is get a 6% return per year on the money they gave him and it'll cover his entire obligation by the time the obligation is due. Okay. In other words, he just got some float which is the insurance policy idea that they're gonna hand you money from your policy and then you get to use that money um, until you have to pay off the policy. That's called float. All right, so where are you going with all this? Well, where I'm going with this is that, <laughs> is that um, if this market melts down, the profits that we've gotten in this Chipotle Mexican grill. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm back to burritos. Me. You are killing me. That's where All I'm right, going. Here's the progression. Today, Buffett has three forms of investing. All right, I'm nodding along. I'm nodding along. Walk I didn't tell you the third one. Oh, yeah, I guess Number I did. Number two is, is uh, the, 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 the private companies. Number three is options, right? Well, kind and, of. They're, it's basically oh, trades. Of. And then, it's so trades. that's not even the full story. And then... <laughs> And then it's it's all the way over to the meltdown of the financial markets that are potentially there because of the tariff situation and, you know, like everything that could happen. And then I went off about Jim Rogers and different. And now we're now we're somehow back to Chipotle Mexican Grill. It all makes perfect sense in my head. It just <laughs> sings like like, you know, Sinatra in my head. It's beautiful music. <laughs> So let's get on with it. So the third style of investing that Buffett uses, since he uses he has generals, which are stocks that we talk about, then there's the controls, which is just buying the whole thing, and then there is the special situations, which are essentially trades that come up because of some things. Options fall into that category. So do mergers and acquisitions, your particular field of law. 
is a special situation that Buffett's been taking advantage of for years. So sometimes there's a price mismatch between the public stock. Oh, I didn't know what you offer. meant by that as opposed to the the private company purchases. So what you mean is like a public merger and acquisition situation, like merger or acquisition where a public company is purchasing another company or they're merging that he then essentially like can arbitrage the price in some way. Look at you. Yes, that's right. Okay. He can arbitrage the price. So there's an announcement that this company, this company is going to be acquired. The stock jumps up on the announcement of $15 a share. The acquisition price is at $17. Well, typically what happens is they're going to acquire the company at $20. The stock jumps to $19.99 or even $20.03. In other words, all of the profit is immediately there on the stock price. Jumps right up there on the news. And then over time, as this potential merger goes along, investors start to realize that, oh, well, I could sell my stock right now. I don't have to wait mm -hmm. for this merger to be finally approved by the government or something. Mm -hmm. huh, I can get it all. So then they start, to, they start to sell, and that drives the price down off of that peak of $20. And pretty soon, there's an arbitrage opportunity. Now the stock price is at 18 this deal might close within the next three months. You can make $2 on it. And you look at what's my risk. Well, my risk is it was at 15 already. Then it jumped to 20. So if the deal doesn't go through, it's going to go down to 15. So I'm risking $3 to make two. Well, heck, I'll do that deal. So those are uh, M&A arbitrage special situations. That would be a speculation. That would be a speculation. Not. And Warren buys in the days when these were not widely available or people didn't know about them. He would buy 20 or 30 of these at once mm -hmm. or just over wow. time, right? To have, because something you're going to lose on. It's all a game. It's a guess. But yeah. options fall into that category and there's a bit of a guess. So in so that So how does this context, get us to Chipotle? Well, with Chipotle, there's another way to use options um, other than sort of just guessing. And that is when I already own the company, which I do, and I've already made a very large profit, which I have then I can use options to protect my profit. Now, why do you want to talk about options? Because I think it's important to talk about what happens when it's time to exit. So we've talked about a lot about getting into investments. We've talked very little about getting out of them. We've talked about, hey, we stay with this forever. You know, there's no, there's no time when you want to sell it if it's remaining a good company. Um, we buy things, we hold them, right? But in fact, when our teacher was doing all this, Warren Buffett, back in the day, when he wasn't rich, when he started with $100, he was a very active investor. Hmm. He would buy companies, hold them, buy them for an, a very good price, hold them until they got up near their intrinsic value, what he perceived to be their true value, and then he'd sell them and move the money into the next opportunity. Yeah, well, he also had a fairly different investing style at that point because he was following the Ben Graham. Um, I don't know if it was quite the cigar butt style where it was by like 100 at a time, but it was, you know, he owned a number of companies and he didn't really care if they were really good companies and had good fundamentals. And it wasn't until he and Charlie Munger started working together that he started shifting to what what you've been teaching me, which is to... Uh, purchase just a small number of companies that have really good long-term prospects. And Warren says his favorite holding period is forever. And that is all quite true. It is also a fact that when you get large enough to affect the market as you 
exit a company, you stop being nimble enough to get out even when it's obvious that the company is vastly overpriced and it would be smart to simply get out and then come back in and buy it again later when it comes back to a normal price. Um, and in fact, in 1999, he was asked very uh, directly, why aren't you getting out of Coca-Cola? Why didn't you get out? It's, it went to $75 a share and it was vastly over the top in terms of its value and uh, being driven up by this long, long, long 20-year bull market um, that took everything to the roof, right? And so people said, why aren't, why aren't you getting out? He said, I'm just not nimble enough anymore. I don't, I, you know, I have, he says, if you don't think that trying to manage a lot of money is a heavy weight on your investment returns, um, you haven't ever tried to manage a lot of money. It, it's very <laughs> difficult to do. And, and everyone and, was like, well, yeah, that's true. We yeah, haven't actually tried, haven't actually tried that. But when you're managing quite a lot of money, there's a, a, a quite a lot of virtue in the notion that you stay in it forever for two reasons. First, where else are you going to put it? You got to put it someplace also very large <clears throat> that happens to be on sale. And those opportunities don't come along that often. And second, you have this problem that if you exit, you're going to drive that stock price down. Yeah, that's I get it. That's true. Well, neither of those are a problem for us. <laughs> we have small amounts of money. But we I'm have lots of opportunities. I'm struggling because that's what you have taught me to do. Yes. So, so first, why the shift? First you walk, then you run. So we But I like to walk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's nothing wrong with walking. And you may be in a position um, with income that allows you to walk. And in other words, let's take a look at, at three different investing styles. One is for a person who is 20 years old, um, expects to have a reasonably decent career, to be able to save money every year. For that person, learning to, and, and who you know intends to be in a career and work and doesn't mind doing that, and saving money and just having a you know a regular life, for that person investing you know ten uh, percent of their of their income every single year in the stock market and the index just by SPY um, makes perfect sense because you will be wealthy um, when you retire at age sixty five. You'll be there. You know you you almost can't help it. Um, you're basically a little bit gambling that the American economy will continue to grow, but it's a good gamble, it's a good bet. And if you compound money at, at let's say, 9% a year, and you put in a reasonable amount of money every year, 10% of your income, if you can do that steadily and, and with discipline, you're going to be wealthy when you retire. Now, you're not gonna live in wealth. You, you, you won't have financial freedom while you're working, but you will be able to retire comfortably. You won't have to rely on Social Security. Okay, so that's investing mm -hmm. style number one. It requires a lot of time because as we know, the stock market can go up for a bunch of years and then it can go down in nowhere for a bunch of years. So you gotta have a lot of time for that strategy to work. Um, unfortunately, the financial advisors pitch that and only that strategy to you. No matter how old you are, how much money you've got or how much you've saved, that's the only strategy, okay? Now, second group of people, they're making some money, but they want financial freedom or they're older and they want to be able to retire, and they don't have lots of time. So lots of time, but don't want to work forever, uh, or not much time, and don't have a lot of money. For that group, investing in wonderful companies when they go on sale 
um, is fantastic. And it will result in high rates of return, probably 15% or better is a reasonable expectation above the market returns of 9%. And you're going to reach a point in time when you're comfortable enough to be able to retire at any at, at 45 or something like that, depending on when you start. And then there's a third group of people who are really kind of in trouble. They're at 55 years old, they've got $10,000, $50,000. They don't have enough money to ever retire. And 15% isn't gonna do it. They're gonna to have to get more velocity in their rates of return. They're forced to gamble a bit, or they're forced to be more aggressive. And for that group of people, when they run a stock up to its intrinsic value, at that point in time, when the stock reaches intrinsic value, it's the rate of growth of your capital is going to slow down to the growth rate of that company. So let me take a real obvious example. Let's say you're buying Wrigley's chewing gum and its growth rate is 4% a year. All right. Okay. But it's mm -hmm. super on sale. The company, not the stock. Right. The, the company's growth rate. Uh, it's just raising prices with inflation plus a little bit. And that's it doesn't really increase its market share. It's just growing at 4% a year. All right. Understood. This could still be a wonderful investment for you. You buy it at, when it's super on sale because of a recession, and um, when the recession's over, the stock doubles. Hmm. So let's say that takes three years. At that point in time, you're compounding money at 26% per year over that three-year period. You're rolling your eyes? No, I'm, I'm trying to follow that. Okay, so let's take Wrigley's. Let's say it's worth $100 a share. There's a recession. It goes down to $50 a share. Oh, in the recession, the stock price went way down. Right. I must have just missed that. Okay, got it. So now the stock's so it went at 50 way down, and, and then it goes back up to its intrinsic value, right. despite the company only growing at 4% per year in actuality. Right. Its intrinsic value based on that 4% growth per year is 100 bucks a share. We've got decided it. that. And now it's doubled. When you bought it at 50, it's doubled to 100. It did that in three years. Your compounded growth rate of doubling in three years is 26% per year. So now you've just killed it, right? You've got this fabulous rate of return. And now it's at intrinsic value. Now what will happen to the growth rate of your money? Let's say you put in $10,000. Now you have $20,000. What's going to happen to the growth rate of your money in the future if you stay in Wrigley's forever? Probably not much. It's going to grow at 4%. There you go. I mean, that's what's going to happen if the market's rational and ultimately it, it does produce rational numbers. It's going to grow at 4% and that's it. That's what you get. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when, you know, for some investors like Buffett, where they're having trouble figuring out where to put their money because they've got so much of it, uh, having a company that's an absolute guaranteed rock solid, you know, 4% return is like putting the money in a bond. You know, mm -hmm. all right, that's good enough right there. We'll just leave it right there. Mm -hmm. All right, we're getting a huge cash flow on our capital. Fine. But for those of us who are in a position where you've got to make high returns consistently, it's time to move the money out of Wrigley's and find another one where you can buy a $10 bill for $5. Yeah. You've mentioned this before where... We had we had we talked a whole bunch about intrinsic value and what happens when it gets up there, and 
the conclusion was, yeah, you should move it out. But the problem is it can be hard to find $5 bills for $10. And so I think our actual conclusion was you leave it in until you've got another good choice. Exactly. And now what we want to do is add another level of sophistication to this, leave it in until you got another good choice. And that thing is an option trade. Okay? That thing is an options trade that gives us another level of sophistication. Now, I know I'm going to have comments from people who are, who are pretty good investors, and they're going to say, you don't have to do anything fancy. Just put in a stop loss. Just put in an order that says if it goes below $95 a share, sell it and leave that in there. Or put in a stop loss that's contingent on a percentage. If it drops more than 5%, sell it. You And yes, you can do that. Okay? You could do that. Yeah, but that's not what you're talking about. No, it's not. And there's a reason for that. And that is that um, I actually want to get more out of it if there's more to get. And I don't want to be sold out of this stock if it's just going to bounce around and then move up. So what I want to do is I want to set up a trade where if it goes up, I get the benefit of that. Let's say if it goes up from 100 to 120, or, or even higher, perhaps. Let's say 120. And if it goes down, I don't want to lose any money. How do I do that? Okay. All right. Now, let's. We, I was going to get to that this time, but I'm not getting there. 100%. <laughs> so let's just leave this one with there's a way to do that. And there's a reason that we do that uh, in order to maximize our rate of return and minimize our losses. So we don't have to be worried that this market melts down as a result of a trade war and suddenly our lovely $10,000 of profit just goes completely away and we have to start over. It'd be much more fun to take the profit off the table and immediately be able to buy the stock again at, you know, 50 bucks a share. That'd be awesome. So let's see if there's a way for us to do that uh, using options next time. Oh, and before we go, one more quick thing. What's that? I want to I want to add. I want to put in an ad right now. <laughs> we are going to do a 3-day workshop, our our transformational investing workshop where we talk about all this stuff and we put you to work doing it and you walk out of the workshop having learned all these things. Um and we're going to do this actually in Birmingham, Alabama. We've never done this before there. So Birmingham. this is your same workshop that you do in Atlanta, but you're just moving it to Alabama for one weekend? Yeah, we were we were going to do it in, in Atlanta, but the hotels were all full. Something's going on in Atlanta. And the Birmingham um, Ross Resort, it's the Renaissance Birmingham Ross, uh, is a beautiful resort, big golf course, the whole thing. And they are a little off season and they've just basically turned the place over to us. So we're oh, taking nice. it. We're taking cool. it. It's ours. And we're going there. So we're going to be at the Birmingham Ross um, on the dates, July 20th, 21st, 22nd. Um, you have to make a reservation if you want to come. If you want to come, we'll give you a full scholarship. No charge. We don't sell anything there. There's not even a hint of anything to buy. You're going to totally just learn how to invest. Am I telling the truth, Danielle? That is true. Right, I thank agree. You. All right. So you need I to find out about nothing. that. So um, email support at rule1investing.com, support at rule1investing.com, 
or, or go, can they go to like rollandinvesting.com and is there info? And there's a there's no info on that specific one because we just uh, don't do that on the website. But you can apply for a scholarship at the the transformational investing workshop. There's a lot of stuff about that, and then make it note that you want to go to the Birmingham one, cool. Birmingham, Alabama, July 20 to 22. And we're we're pitching this right now because we just decided to do this thing, and and I doubt that we're going to fill it up. So it's an opportunity. <laughs> it's an opportunity to get there when the rest of them are full for months ahead of time. So if you can come on and visit, and we'll we'll see you there. And are you going to try to come to that one? No, I can't make it to that one. Oh man! Another time, another time. All right, fair enough. Love to see you there. Maybe you'll change your mind. All right, we'll let you know. <laughs> All right, you guys, thanks for listening to that. Uh, sorry, we don't like to do that very often, but uh, we'd love to see you at this thing. And I guess now it's time to go play. See ya. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to Invested. Looking for a deep dive into the principles we discuss on this podcast? Well, then you may have to just check out our free online course. Yep, free. Called the Intro to Rule Number One. The course teaches you the basics of rule number one investing. And I want you to take advantage of this five lesson video course just by visiting investedpodcast.com slash course. All there for you for free. If you enjoyed this episode and want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.